Good morning, Sun Valley. Children, I think you can be dismissed at this time to go to your children's church time. The rest of you can turn with me to the book of James. We're in chapter 4. Going to be wrapping up chapter 4 today, Lord willing. <clears throat> I'm going to be reading to begin our service in the Word by uh, reading for you James chapter 4, 13 through 17. So if you'd follow along, I think you'll be blessed. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year here and there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a while, a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. To tie in what you just heard from the, the scripture reading from Jared and 2 Samuel, uh, King David was convicted that he had a really nice house and, and the house of the Lord was a tent. And see, so he proposed to Nathan that uh, he was going to go build the house of God into this great edifice, um, which became Solomon's temple. Uh, but and then Saul and then Nathan came along and says, "Do whatever you whatever you think you should." But then the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, "Hold on a second, let's let's back up the train. Let's do it my way." That's what you just heard read from Second Samuel. David proposed something wonderful and good. God said, that's not the best time. Let's wait a little bit. I'm going to do that through your son, Samuel, your son uh, Solomon. So I just want to make sure you understood how these two things tied together here, so you're not just hearing things that seem unconnected. But uh, in fact, we have uh, some continuity in what we're trying to uh, present to you from week to week here. But the text that, that I just read to you from James, chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, is a uh, I think a familiar one, particularly interesting, especially uh, when we have just gone through and experienced some, something traumatic, like uh, a death in the family, or um, even if we've attended a funeral of a loved one or a memorial service of a loved one. The words that I just read to you from James 4 carry a certain weight, don't they? When you realize that, that your life is, is um, not really up to you, when it ends is not your call, uh, how long you live really isn't for you to say. What I just read for you clearly communicates that. I enjoy looking at old photos. I have uh, books at home of old photos from the Yakima Valley, and most of them are black and white. And every once in a while I look through that just to, not only because I enjoy them, but because they bring a, a certain a seriousness to life that, that I enjoy and that I think I need. I look at those pictures and everybody in those books, every picture of every person in those books is gone. At one point, you look in their faces when, if you look close enough, you can see hope, you can see uh, dreams, you can see, you know, enthusiasm and vigor for life. And now what? They're gone. They're off the scene. Same thing is true when you walk through a cemetery. You look at the dates and names on these tombstones and same reality is there. One of my favorite movie scenes of all time is the Dead Poets Society when the teacher at the beginning of the movie takes his students to the trophy case and shows them pictures of all these past teams, all these guys in black and white photos, 
And he says, you know what they're doing now? They're, they're pushing up daffodils. He goes, they're, they're food for worms. And then, of course, he says, you know, carpe diem, live for the day. Uh, my point is here, let's live for God. Uh, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And this is what James's point is. How do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? None of us do. Um, today, I want to help you think about the future. And to begin to do that, I, I want to, to tie this concept back into the theme of the book of James, which is a test of authentic faith. Is your faith real? Do you know Christ personally? Do you know Jesus? Um, and I think that the Bible clearly states that nothing identifies the character of a genuine believer more than their willingness to obey the will of God. Would you agree with that? Isn't that a, a, a fundamental mark of a true believer? that that person wants to obey God's will. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? Obey my commandments. And so, yeah, this is, this is a, a fundamental reality. The Bible is spattered with these kind of things. It says this in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I'm a believer. I want to do your will. And then Matthew 7, 27, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, not just those who talk, the talk, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the person who's going to enter the kingdom. That's the person who has an authentic faith. It's these people who desire to do God's will. Doing the will of God is another test of genuine faith. Ignoring or rejecting the will of God, of course, exhibits pride and an overwhelming worldly influence, and I think insinuates Maybe a lack of authentic faith. This is what Paul says in, to his letter to Titus. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So this is what grace of God does. It saves people. Look what else it does. It trains us to renounce ungodliness. Okay, good. And look at worldly passions. Put them aside. And live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. These are people who are obeying the will of God. These people who have actually experienced God's grace see change. They become people who desire God's will. Last week we saw in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4 that our own sin, our own ignorance, ignorance of each other's hearts and motives should prevent us from judging one another, um, should prevent us from putting ourselves in God's place of judgment in each other's lives. But it also we see in this week's text, verses 13 through 17, we'll see that, that those same limitations, our sin, our ignorance of, of the future, our ignorance of, of deep things, should keep us from um, being so uh, uh, sure of the future. Do not we have limitations? Of course we do. I can't see the motives of your heart. I can't really read why you do what you do. Neither can I look into the future. The same limitations that keep me from judging you keep me from proudly asserting the future, my own future. And I think that's why these two, are, these two uh, texts are so closely connected. I have three points I want to make today to you. And these, this outline is in your bulletin if you want to fill in the blanks. And I'm sorry, there's a lot of blanks to fill in, but I hope you don't get writer's cramp. But... Um, these are, the, these are the points I want to make. The first is this, the ignorance of ignoring God's will. James points out here 
in verses 13 and 14, the ignorance of ignoring God's will. He begins by, by using these words, come now, as, as if what he is about to say is absurd. And it is absurd. There seems to be a, almost a touch of sarcasm in his words to think that we frail, limited individuals can even control the future when we, we have a hard enough time controlling our present circumstances. James is like saying, really? Come now. <laughs> is how he introduces the subject. But, you know, this attitude of, of planning and not giving a second thought to God is pervasive in our culture. I, I might say arrogant culture. Independence from God is, isn't just a pagan problem, is it? I mean, we Christians marry, choose vocations, have children, buy, sell homes, expand our portfolios, and ride the, the current of the culture without a thought of the will of God many times. I mean, when's the last time you really prayed for God's will for tomorrow? Maybe God's will for, you know, 30 years from now. But what about God's will for what you're going to do tomorrow or this afternoon or how you're going to approach life in the future? To find the will for or God's will for your life, St. Augustine said this, love God and do as you please. That's really a biblical wisdom. You want to know God's will? If you'll just love God, if you'll delight in the Lord, he will make your path straight. He, he will show you the way. So, love God and do as you please, St. Augustine said. But these people in James 4, 13 and 14, we people in our day and age say this, do as you please and say that you love God. Right? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do this. This is what James is talking to. These are the folks he's addressing. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. Oh, yeah, I love, I love Jesus too. When you make plans with no thought of God, it means that you are what many past theologians have called a practical atheist. You say you believe God. You say you love Jesus. But you never give a second thought to him when it comes to actually having him influence the direction of your life. Practical atheism. Oh, I don't think any of us would ever say, I'm a practical atheist. Um, but if God makes no difference in your day-to-day -day existence, that is what you are, a practical atheist. Uh, how long do we have to live in this life before we understand that this self-centered philosophy of life is really quite naive? Thinking that we can control the future by simply making plans. Take notice of why the people in verse 13 and 14 are planning what they're planning. Did you see that? Did you know why, you know why they're doing what they're doing? Is it to bring glory to Christ? I'm going to go to this city or that city to share the gospel. What, what was their motive? Make a profit. To make life comfortable. To bring some ease my direction. These plans were to be accomplished completely in their own strength, their own ingenuity. These were what they thought self-made people, independent folks, with no interest in God's opinion. I hope you can see the pertinence of this for our day and age. Now, I want to, I want you to make, I want to make sure you're, you're hearing James and you're hearing me. James isn't saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't make plans. Jesus said you should make plans, didn't he? 
He says, if you go about trying to build a, a, a tower without thinking about what you're going to do, you're a fool. So making plans isn't the issue. So if making plans isn't the issue, what is the issue? It's what we ignore in the plan making that is the issue, according to James. So James would say, go ahead and plan, go ahead and, and strategize, but, but don't ignore God in the process of those things. The ones that James is addressing are those who claim to be believers but have cast God, cast his agenda to the side. Saying that's, that's for pastors and missionaries. Oh, I've, I'm going to take God up on this offer of salvation thing, but as far as living for him, I... So I don't, think, I don't think James is really all that concerned about their motives to make profit. He's not... He's not condemning their desire to make little money and plan for the future. Jesus and James would say, no, you ought to plan for the future. You ought to be wise in that regard. But don't exclude God from the process. What is it that God desires for your future? What does God desire your plans to look like as it pertains to life, family, vocation, leisure? That is, I think, the focus here in this text. James here gives us four arguments that reveal the foolishness of ignoring God's will. We're looking at the, the, the ignorance of ignoring God's will. Look at, the, look at this. He gives us four arguments for this. The first, in, the first is found in verse 13, and, and I want to read it again for you. Come now, you who say, tomorrow or to, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Think of the complexity of all of this. There's yesterday, there's tomorrow, there's today, there's buying, selling, preparing, gaining, losing. There are people, places, activity, goals, decision, hopes, planning, the weather that we can't control. All these things are outside of our control. Every day there are thousands of variables and thousands, literally, decisions that you make, some more consequential than others, but thousands of the variables and decisions that come into play Life is complex, and so it is unwise to claim to have a fix on the future. How often have you changed plans because of unforeseen circumstances? I would venture to say that 50% of us in here today change plans already today because of unforeseen circumstances. Changing plans is as common as making plans to us, isn't it? Yes. No one knows the way the winds are going to blow in life. This is, isn't just an uncommon problem in the Christian community. I know plenty of people who try to control every possible contingency, fret over every speck of minutia, in an attempt to do exactly what these people in verses 13 and 14 are doing. There, there's nothing that's going to get outside of my little plan here. If it does, I have a meltdown. I know people like that. I think James is saying it's important to know that we are not in charge of our lives. We're not the captain of our own ship, as we like to say. No matter how powerful we are, how rich we are, how smart we are, we do not control the future. And it, no amount of planning is going to change that. We need to live as we say we believe as Christians. Who's the sovereign one? God, not me. 
Who's the omnipotent one? God, not me. Who's the omniscient one? God, not me. We say we believe that, but how do we live? I think you all know, at least intellectually, that God is in the process of putting together a divine mosaic, really, that demonstrates his creative power, his divine love, meticulous perfection, and his interest in our welfare. And all these things combine together for his glory and our good. We, we know that intellectually, but we're not certain that it's a safe plan, right? And so we insert our own ideas. But life is complex. The second argument for the foolishness of ignoring God is this. Life is uncertain. This is similar in many ways, but life is uncertain. Look at verse 14. The first clause of verse 14 comes from Proverbs 21. James must have been reading Proverbs. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. This wasn't new to James. It's not new to us. Probably wasn't new to Solomon. The people in verse 13 here in James 4 were making a pl plans years in advance when it's impossible to even know what tomorrow brings. And it, again, it wasn't that they were planning, it's that they were planning without respect to God. Their, their confidence was a sure sign of, of prideful independence from him. And I, I think this is the same attitude that the rich farmer had in Jesus' Jesus's parable in Luke 12. Remember, he, this, this farmer had a, a windfall, all sorts of good crops, good years in a row, and what did he do? i got to figure out how to make myself better. So he's going to expand his, his business, build bigger barns and so forth. And what, what did the Lord say when he spoke to him that night? You fool, tonight your soul is required of you. This is the very thing that James is talking about. It's the same thing Jesus is talking about. This is a biblical concern. Life is uncertain. Life is complex. Next, life is brief. We don't need to be reminded of this. As I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what? The younger you are, the longer life seems. You notice that? Everybody over 40 notices that. The, long, the younger you are, the longer life seems. I remember when I was a kid thinking I'd never turn 13. And then it was forever before I got married. Yeah, and I got married when I was 22. But it was forever. I was convinced that my children would always be toddlers. And I know some of you moms think that. These kids will always, I've always been a mother of toddlers. You don't remember anything else, do you moms? But now it seems like I have a better grasp of time, sort of. I'm going to be 60 this year. 60, yeah. <laughs> Tune off. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah, thank you. That means in 10 years, I'm going to be 70. And I don't mean to slight you 70-year-olds in here. It's just like, 70. For Pete's sake, I mean, I was a dad of a toddler just a few days ago. It's hard to believe, but life is brief. brief. I think the best way to do this is think about our lives in relation to eternity, if we're going to think biblically. 
it says that physical life is just a mist. We've read it. We've sung it today. Life is just a mist. And what is a mist? Poof. In relation to eternity. Scripture, uh, scripture speaks of it so often. Let me read just a couple. Job 9.25, My days are swifter than a runner, they flee away. Psalm 90, 5 and 6, you sweep them away, that is those that God, that is, God is speaking of here. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. Gone. You know, thinking seriously about the brevity of our lives is good, and it causes us to, and it causes us to invest our lives instead of just spend them. When, when you start thinking seriously about life, it changes how you think about you're gonna, how you're going to live your next day. This is why I enjoy funerals more than weddings. This is why I enjoy looking at old black and white pictures. It helps me think about how to spend my days, my next 24 hours. Our investment, of course, ought to be in something worthwhile, right? Something that's a little more substantial than just my own estate. I don't know if you've read this book. I'm certain you're familiar with it if you've been in this church for a while, but John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. If you haven't read that, pick up a copy. He, he spends the entire book talking about this topic. Don't waste your life. And by the way, it doesn't matter what age you are. This is a pertinent conversation. The, the final argument that James makes is found in verse 14b. Again, referring to life as a vapor. But life is frail. I mean, is there anything more frail than a vapor or a mist? I mean, you, you wave your hand and it's gone. You, you, you see that? that vapor coming off the top of your hot coffee and you wave your hand and it's gone. How frail is that? That's what James compares your life to, my life to. It's like that. I think it's clear that James is concerned these people are boasting about their future and when they do so, they're just basically revealing their weakness, their frailty. It's, it's, a, it's a cover for their frailty. The Catholic theologian Thomas Akempis said this, man proposes, but God disposes. Man proposes, but God disposes. How many times are we shocked with the death of a young person? I can think back this just this past year that happened to me. I'm shocked at the death of this person who was so young. They were here just yesterday. I saw them. It's shocking. And I don't think we can control the future anymore than we can control the weather. So to boast about the future is, is putting oneself in the place of God. And James says, that is evil in verse 14. It's evil to do that. And all these things just simply reveal the foolishness of a person who plans without any thought of God. Don't they realize that life is frail? It could be gone in a second? Really? You're going you're gonna to plan all about your life and ignore God in this picture? Don't you realize that this could be your last breath? I remember 
I was driving back to college uh, from winter break. I was in, I was near Eugene, Oregon on I-5 about 10, 11 o'clock at night and I was driving in the fast lane because the slow people were driving in the slow lane. And I was driving in the fast lane and I saw what looked like, you know, when, you're, when the lights are coming at you, it's hard to see where they are. I don't know if that's how you struggle, but I like, and so I thought, okay, I'm just getting, it looks, this car looks like he's in my lane. And the closer it got, the more I realized that car's in my lane. I was on the freeway, mind you, going 65, 75 miles an hour. This guy was coming at me going the same speed. And there are cars on my right. And I'm going, this isn't good. <laughs> so I did my best and I, and I kind of forced my way in between two vehicles and they kind of honked and waved at me, as you know what people do. And then I got in and this guy flew past me in the fast lane, in my lane. And I was looking in the rearview mirror waiting for an explosion. That could have been it. Life is frail. Could have spared Sherry a life of misery. <laughs> Actually, I should say a life of sanctification. <laughs> the ignorance of ignoring God's will. How about this? The danger of disobeying God's will. See this in verse 16, as, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Knowing the will of God and doing the will of God, you know, are two different things, right? Uh, obviously, the people in verse 16 know the will of God, but they fail to do it. They're boasting in it and boasting and not doing it, in fact. I think this is even more prideful than those who ignore the will of God. Those who know the will, but ignore it or don't ignore it, reject it. Now, they think they have a better plan for the future than God does, so they're going to just move ahead with their plans regardless of God's revealed will. It's one thing to make plans when God has not revealed his will in the area, but to make plans opposed to God's will is another issue completely, isn't it? There's, there's danger here in disobeying the will of God like this. And danger lies in many areas, but I'm just going to mention a couple. There's danger in losing out on heavenly reward. And for those who are consumed with the present, heavenly rewards aren't too, you know, profound. But let me, let me alert you to the fact that this is a problem. Those of you who, who believe in heaven, those of you who believe there is a reward for those who are faithful, losing out on heavenly rewards is concerning. Let me read for you from 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Friends, if you willingly reject the will of God, the revealed will of God, like these folks in verse 16, you are giving up eternal reward if you are a believer. It's bad enough that we ignore the will of God, but to, to take the next step and arrogantly reject it is a significant red flag if you call yourself a believer. The first group are these practical atheists that I've already described. But this second group, those who reject the revealed will of God, are not practical atheists. They're their own gods. 
They have made gods out of themselves. I don't care what God says, what he thinks. I'm doing it my way. I, I know that God says don't have sex before you're married, but come on. What are you supposed to do in Yakima? Right? So, let's look at this a little bit closer. Danger of disobeying God's will. First of all, it reveals pride. I think I've already mentioned that. Pride is why people willingly disobey the will of God. They think that their way is better, right? Our default is to be the master of our own ship. To think that the will of God is a suggestion that can be ignored or rejected is dangerous. Why? Well, just go back just a couple verses in this same chapter and we read that God opposes who or whom? The proud. And I think we demonstrate our pride when we reject the revealed will of God. Next, it demonstrates a lack of faith. I think this is a significant reason that we need to pay attention to. Um, you know, we can be meticulous in our planning and, and preparations be, because we lack the faith that God will take care of us, at least in how I want to be taken care of. God, I, I know that the righteous will never be forsaken, but I want a little bit better future than just not being forsaken. You know, I want a little retirement villa. If we don't trust God to get our daily lives right, how are we going to trust God to get our eternity right? It demonstrates a lack of faith. Next, it forecasts, forecasts judgment. If you are willing to disobey the revealed will of God... There is danger there and because it forecasts judgment. Not just a loss of reward, but actual judgment. Listen here to Luke 12, Jesus said, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. That's Jesus' words. That's not mine. Those are Jesus' words. Second Peter 2 the apostle said, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness, known the will of God, than after knowing it to turn back on it from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would have been better if they never knew the will of God. So at least they could claim ignorance. But having known, how dangerous is that going to be? So we have the, the ignorance of ignoring God's word, the danger of, of not doing the word, or the will of God. Now let's look at the sweetness of submitting to it. The sweetness of submitting to the will of God. Verse 15, instead, James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What a breath of fresh air that attitude is in this world that I've been describing. The, the word to say there in the original language is a present active infinitive. Instead, you ought to say. A present active in, uh, infinitive simply means that it's an ongoing habitual thing. It's an ongoing habitual submission to the will of God. It's my practice to submit to the will of God. This is what I do. I not only believe it's the will of God, I submit to it. This means that a believer's commitment, ongoing commitment, is to following God's will as the, the central moving reality in their existence. 
It's, it's an intentional, habitual, daily practice. That's the idea there that James wants us to consider. And when we do this, when we seek out God's will on a daily, habitual practice, we affirm our belief that he is sovereign, that he is actually concerned with the interests of my life. This is a mature attitude that welcomes our circumstances no matter what they are. This is why we can be joyful in trial, because we believe that God has our best intention at heart. Seeking the Lord's will is sweet because it actually describes an act of worship. Do you know that when you submit to the Lord's will, when you seek the Lord's will, you're actually worshiping God? This is what Paul described in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, in the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That, that gives the idea of a daily living sacrifice every day. Holy and acceptable God, which is your what? Spiritual act of worship. Some believe that the will of God is boring or miserable or dangerous, maybe all three combined. How bad does that make the will of God? It's boring, miserable, and dangerous. Well, I want to suggest to you that the safest place on the planet is in the will of God. Some think following Christ is risky. I think not following Christ is risky. I think that there is zero risk in following Christ. I think the Bible is abundantly clear, abundantly clear on that issue. You say, well, what about these folk? What about John Chow? Right? He, he just died down there in the islands off of India just a month or two ago. Seems risky to me. Really? And how bad's it going for John Chow right now? Yeah. There is no risk, friends, in following Christ wholeheartedly. Well, I might not have what my neighbor has. That's probably good. And so on the argument goes. You know, some, well, it, it restricts my freedom when I have to submit to God's will in all these areas and, you know, acknowledge him in all of our, all my planning. It, it, it kind of restricts me. Well, it's about as restrictive as a train is to a train track, Right? Would you say that a locomotive is restricted by the train tracks or freed? He's freed, isn't it? That, that, that locomotive is freed by the tracks. You take the locomotive off the tracks, does it function? It does not. does not work at all. But when you put it on those tracks, it's freed to run as fast as it wants. The sweetness of submitting to God's will reveals, when we do reveal, when we do submit to God's will, it reveals a right mindset. In verse 15, James is using that, the contrasting language again that we've seen all throughout the book of James. Uh, godly wisdom, if you remember 3, chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, godly wisdom will say, if the Lord wills, worldly wisdom would say, well, I'm going to do it my own way. So all throughout the book of James has been these two contrasting options, right? Those who have authentic faith, they do this. Those who don't, they do this. The first word of verse 15 uh, in the original language is the, is the English word instead, and it's, it's anti or anti in the Greek language. Antithesis. It's the opposite of the thesis, right? The opposite of doing your own thing is doing God's thing. The opposite of following your own agenda is following God's agenda. The opposite of 
Worldly wisdom is godly wisdom. Verse 15, instead, auntie, you, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and do that. Instead of, I'm going to do it my own way. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the renewal of your mind. It reveals a right mindset when you embrace the will of God, when you pursue the will of God in your daily planning. It, that your mind is right. Because it's been renewed by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. And it even says in, in the rest of that verse, Romans 12, 2, that by testing you may discern the will of God. This, this pursuing the will of God results in a renewed right mindset. It demonstrates a renewed heart. You know that when you come to Christ, you come because you've been given a new heart. That's why you come. Spiritual things begin to look attractive. The, the gospel is clear and understandable and, and sweet. Why? Because you received a new heart. Look at this. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will give you a new heart. Those who, who, are, who come to Christ by faith have been given a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will, re, I will remove the heart of stone. That one that wants to do its own thing aside from God. Um, I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to do my, my, obey my rules. Same kind of idea in Psalm 119.32. Do you remember this? Just a few months back, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. When you've given me a new heart, it's evidence that these things are real. I am actually a child of God. I do have authentic faith. I want to follow his will. And underneath all this, of course... Having a new heart comes a humble attitude. And that humble attitude declares if the Lord wills, I'll go here or go there. I'll do this or do that. Finally, it forecasts a remarkable future. The sweet submission to the will of God forecasts a remarkable future. The Puritans used to sign their letters and papers with Latin words or initials, DV. Deo Volante. I don't know if you, if you are reading Puritans, but if you do, especially their letters, a lot of them are, are signed off. Instead of sincerely yours, they, they sign off Deo Volante. What is it? If God is willing. If God wills. Deo Volante. And I think this attitude should be the constant impulse of our hearts as we live from day to day. If God is willing... And it's more than just words. It's got to be more than words, right? It's got to be attitude. It's got to be truth of the heart. I think it, if God wills, Dale Volante should be inscribed over our college plans, the choice of a marriage partner, where we live, actually, where we live, where we work, what we hope for our children, the direction of our church. Dale Volante, if the Lord wills. DV, before and after everything we do, and all that we've associated with. There is clear submission to God's will in these initials and these words, Deo Volante. I think there's a humility of mind and heart that's revealed within them. So look down as I close to verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, what is it that, what is that good that we are to do? 
Let me give you some suggestions as it relates to this text. We are to reject the delusion which sees God as irrelevant to life. That's the right thing to do, to reject that philosophy that said, God is irrelevant. Are you kidding me? I'm not my own master. I don't have anybody telling me what to do. No, well, reject that. That's the right thing to do. If you don't reject that, what does it say? For him it's sin. Next, what's the good to do? We are to embrace the truth that our life is short and that we have no control over its brief span. Life, are you living like you know that your life is frail? Like your life is short? Are you living that way? I don't care if you're 10, 50, or 100. Are you living today knowing that your life is short? Are you spending your breath? You only have so many breaths left, you know, before you stop doing that. What are you going to do with the remaining breath that you have? You know, these uh, deep sea divers, they go, they dive in with tanks of air on their back, right? You've seen these things. They dive in and they've got a watch. What's the watch for? Tells you how much life, how much breath you have left, how much air is left in that tank. When it gets to the red part, you better start heading to the surface, right? There's only so much air in that tank. There's only so much breath you have left in your life. Are you spending it wisely? Or are you just tooling around the neighborhood down there looking at rocks and goofing off? Or are you getting something done while you're down here? We have to embrace the truth that our life is short and we have no control of it. Are we spending our lives wisely? You know, Jim Elliott, as many of you know, is a big hero of mine. And he, he says stuff that I try to remember. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Can you keep your life? Do you know that you, you can't do anything about yesterday. You can't do anything about the breath you were taking when you walked into this room an hour ago. He is no fool who gives up, who is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Are you, are you looking to that which you can gain? Are you investing in eternity with the way you're spending your life? We are to invest our lives, friends, and everything in our lives for the cause of Christ. You're not saved to get a ticket to heaven. You're saved to make much of Christ. You're saved to bring the world Christ. You're saved to be an encouragement, a source of hope and joy and knowledge of God himself to those who you come in contact with every day. Are you investing your lives everything in your life for Christ only what's done for we have only one life that will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last as the saying goes well friends let's not spend another breath misusing it pray with me Lord thank you for this passage that brings clarity to our life. 
challenges us where we should be challenged. Father, I pray for the people in this room, people who are listening, that you would uh, use these powerful words of James, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to impact the way we think and live. Thank you that we can be here together in your presence, that we can participate in the Lord's Supper, that we can join together, committing our lives once again to your use. Bless us now, Father, as you come and minister here to us through your spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ in our presence. Amen.